The Rainmaker Evolution to increase freedom, create momentum, and embrace simplicity in your financial services practice. You're listening to the Rainmaker Evolution podcast with Joel Johnson, certified financial planner, co-founder of Johnson Brunetti, author of The Money Map, and leader of the Rainmaker Evolution Mastermind Group. And now, here's Joel. Well, hello and welcome to another Rainmaker Revolution podcast. And we are in our series where we're interviewing people in the group. And um, like I've said in the last two podcasts, uh, what I have chosen is different people that I think have good businesses and have tremendous growth potential and that I respect and I feel like are doing things the right way. And we're going to have conversations with them. So these are your peers. If you were in Rainmaker last year and uh, if you weren't in Rainmaker last year and you're new to the podcast, these are some of the folks that are a year ahead of you um, that you can aspire to. Um, Before we start, we have a typical compliance disclosure, and that is please do not be a knucklehead. Um, do not take something that we say or we, you think that we say and use it in a sales situation or a marketing situation without first running it by your compliance. We will not be responsible, either myself, uh, the guest, or Advisors Excel for anything that you get in trouble by doing um, because you are responsible uh, for your own compliance. Um, with that said, uh, I'm real excited about today's podcast because we're welcoming April Roberts. And uh, April uh, impressed me with her work last year in the Rainmaker Group. I know her production and her firm has has grown, and she's uh, struggled with some things, and we want to hear about some of those struggles because sometimes it's easy for for those of you that are aspiring um, to grow your business, to look at somebody that's a year or two or maybe even a few years ahead of you and get discouraged. So we want you to hear the successes and the struggles of another top producer. So I have April Roberts with me on the podcast. April, welcome. Thanks, Joel. And uh, what I'd like to do is I'm just going to ask you a series of questions and we can just kind of let this roll. So um, first of all, tell me, who is April Roberts? Um, Well, I think my biggest guiding principle in life is that we've been put on this earth to do something. And if we're not true to ourselves and who we are, then we're not going to accomplish what we're here to do. So for me, the most important thing is to be authentic and really do the best I can at everything I do. And what I love to do is when I see that by being that way, I'm inspiring other people to mirror that behavior, even with our clients. Great, great. And your practice, if I understand it properly, is somewhat unique, I think, because you are in the business, your father's in the business, your brother's in the business, but you all have different offices. So maybe you can, and, and, but I think there's some synergy or some sharing of work. Maybe I'm wrong about that. So maybe you can um, sort of step back and take a moment to describe your office and your business and how it functions and then how it functions with those other two offices, or maybe I'm mistaken and they're completely independent. I'm not sure. Correct, Joel. Well, my dad started the business in Mississippi, where we're originally from, South Mississippi. And um, I was going through some life changes and found myself back in Mississippi. At the time, I was a lawyer, a practicing litigator. And I actually would go to my dad's seminars just because we're close, and I would greet the guest. At the time, his assistant retired, and he was kind of winding down the business. 
So during the day I was practicing law and at night I would go to seminars. I thought it was fun to check people in and see them. Um, And that's actually how I got introduced to what my dad did. So after a little bit of time, we decided that I would quit practicing law and come on board with him. So I really had no intention of changing careers or joining the family business. It's just that I saw the difference my dad made and it really called to me. Um, So I was kind of the first kid to fall. I like to joke that my dad tricked me into the business. At the time, his FMO had a conference in West Palm Beach, and he offered me a free trip, and who's going to say no? Um, So that's how I was actually introduced to the business. I went to meetings with him. And then I worked with him in Mississippi for about two years, basically as his intern, just like you trained an associate advisor. I did all the paperwork, all the case prep, all the product knowledge. And I sat through all the meetings with him for about a year and a half. In fact, all he let me do was introduce him at the seminar. Um, So all that time, I got to really just soak in what he does and, you know, learn how he treats people and some of his tax knowledge and financial knowledge. And then I didn't want to stay in Mississippi, so I moved to Houston, Texas to open an office. And the reason I moved here was my sister was living here at the time. So kind of the same thing happened. My sister came to my seminars just to join because we're a pretty close family. And when she saw what I was doing, she decided she wanted to join the business. So my sister and I worked together for a while, and then she worked with my dad, and then she opened her own office. And a couple of years later, the same thing happened with my brother. When he decided to change careers, he kind of interned with my dad and ended up taking over the Mississippi office. So what happened was I opened one office in Houston. My sister opened another office. And then a year ago, my parents moved out here to Houston uh, to be closer to us because for my whole life, they'd been by my brother and his kids. And so my brother took over that business. So we all operate as Robert's Wealth Management. We all operate under the same philosophies. We invest the same way. We market together. But each of us runs our own office separately in our staff. So do you run separate profit losses or is it one big company? No, we run separate. Okay. Okay. And so so just so I'm clear, so Paul the Third, your brother, is still in Mississippi you're in the southwest part of Houston, and then where is your sister? She Where's her is office? in uh, near Clear Lake. Okay, okay, down by NASA and all that sort of south mm-hmm. southeast part of Houston, correct? Correct, and she and my dad work in the office together. Okay, great. And so, how much staff? So let's talk about your office then, because I, I guess. Uh, um, I thought everything was sort of flowing up into a big parent corporation, but it sounds like you've got three different businesses, but you're using each other to to grow and to learn from, and, and your father sort of um, was the matriarch, I guess, is kind of, I don't, I don't know what other word to use, but he sort of set the tone to show you all how to do business, how to treat clients, and so on. Is that correct? Exactly. And, you know, we talk a lot and share ideas, and um, we we really talk about the family a lot in all of our marketing and seminars. So what does your office look like, April? How many staff people do you have? How often do you market? What what other types of marketing activities do you do right now? Sure. So I have um, five employees, a director of first impressions. I have my director of operations who also sets the calendar. And then we have three people on our new business client service team here in the Sugarland office. 
And um, actually, interestingly, my head of new business moved to Tennessee due to her husband's job, and she's working remotely, and it actually works beautifully. And compare that to when did you say you got into the business? You left the law, business of law, and moved back? I joined the business in 2008, July, and I moved to Houston in February 2010. So it'll be my sixth year in business here. Okay, so if we were to go back three years, we, we heard what your practice looks like now. You have five employees, so it's yourself and five other people there at the office in, in uh, Sugarland. What did it look like three years ago? Three years ago, I was just hiring my second employee. Up until then, it was basically myself and assistant, um, and we had a 1,200-square-foot office. And actually, two months ago, we just moved out of the 1,200-square-foot office. So you can imagine we were on top of each other with six of us. Um, and so now we occupy 4,400 square feet, and we have an additional 1,000 square feet that we sublease to attorneys. Um, who do estate planning and different things for our clients. So three years ago was quite different. I was basically doing all of the applications, all of the case prep, plus running all of the appointments and the business. And what would you say your daily activities are like now? Now, um, well, Monday is pretty much spent providing leadership to the team. So I try to meet with everyone on the team. We have a marketing meeting, a team meeting, um, a new business team meeting, and just kind of setting the tone for what our goals are and what we need to be focused on currently. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the only things I do are see prospective clients and also run seminars. And then on Friday, I try to work from home so that I can work on the business, but it doesn't usually happen. I usually end up in the office working on the business. So three years ago, give us an idea of the growth of your personal income from three years ago to today. And you don't have to give us exact numbers unless you want to, but how how much of your personal income, when all said and done, increased from three years ago to today? Let's see. Our revenue has tripled, I can tell you that. Um, And I would probably say my personal income has tripled as well. Okay, great. And what would you contribute to that success? What are the main factors? Uh, Building a team to support me, which uh, took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Have you had challenges in hiring good people? Yes. Let's let's talk about that a little bit because that's something in the last two podcasts we didn't talk a lot. We talked about the importance of team, but we didn't talk as much as uh, I would have liked to uh, in hindsight about the challenges in hiring good people. So maybe we can spend a, a few minutes on that. Tell, tell me about some of your struggles and then successes as far as hiring good people and how important that is uh, that you think that is to the uh, to the business. Well, for me, I mean, again, like I said, one of my guiding principles is to do your best. And so for me, it's really important to be surrounded by an A-team of players. And today I have that. I have not had that in the past. So that's probably the thing that I'm most grateful for on a daily basis. You know, this week, as I mentioned to you, my mom had surgery. So I was out of the office um, actually all week until Thursday. Uh, Three years ago, that never could have happened. Everything would have fallen through the cracks. But today, I mean, I take great pride and it makes me really happy when my team steps up and, you know, handles everything for four days and 
accomplishes things that neither they nor I really expected they would do. So that's really a great thing. And I think we've finally come to that by hiring for the culture. And, you know, Joel, this is one thing you talked about at our very first Rainmaker. Um, Sometimes you just hire people because they're a good fit and you don't really know what they're going to do. And we started taking that mentality. And another another thing I picked up from our first rainmaker, which was huge, um, I had one employee who was hourly, and she was just working for us as kind of a file clerk before going to med school. And you talked about respecting your employees and paying them a good salary. And I came back and immediately put her on salary. And, you know, since then, it's one year later, and she's now a service advisor. She's gotten licensed, and she's training to be a financial advisor. So I think just that small step, just showing my faith in her, made such a big change. That's great. Wow, that's a great, uh, that's a great lesson. H- how did you find the people that you have, and, and do you have a key person, sort of a right-hand person, that when you're not there – other people respect, they look up to, they sort of look to to sort of direct the ship while you're not there? Sure. Um, First of all, hiring got much better when I started using, I guess it's called AE Coach now, but Jenna Rainey and her team, because Mm -hmm. I do think our industry is really different, and it helps when someone is helping you sort out who to hire, kind of knowing how we operate. Because, Joel, I think you'd agree, you and I are not your average bear, So somebody needs to know how to hire uh, the right, you know, the right team that can come in and be open minded and work with us. And so that really helped increase. And, you know, they hired on my first really great team members. In fact, the two members of my leadership team, they found for me. So to answer your second question, I actually formed a leadership committee after you shared with us that you do that with the heads of your teams. And it's really just myself, my director of operations and my director of new business. And for me, I really find that interesting because instead of me just thinking about things and sometimes I think wrong about things or I think differently than other people, it's really nice to have you know people you trust that have a vested interest in the business to give you feedback and um, I do my best to encourage them to disagree with me when when they actually do. And so that's kind of been a comfort to me and also valuable because it empowered them to step up and take leadership roles. So when I'm gone, I know the two of them are, will jump in and take care of whatever's necessary. Now, while you were out here for your mom's surgery, did you run a point? Were appointments running in the office? Yeah, actually, my um, so everyone on my new business team is insurance licensed, so they can run a first appointment, and they're in the process of getting securities licensed. Um, and so they hopped in and ran some appointments, and one of them ran a second appointment as well. So it was nice. We didn't have to reschedule everything. So if you could go back to where you started in the business, and maybe even maybe if we can go back farther than that to, to you know, you obviously worked hard to go through law school and pass the bar, and, and uh, you know, I, I can't imagine how hard that is, but it's got to be a, t- a ton of work. I have a niece that just graduated from Suffolk Law School up here in Boston and real bright, and she didn't pass the bar her first time. And, and so, uh, you know, knowing how hard she works and that she didn't pass, that's got to be a monumental task. Um, so going back, if we can go back, I'm going to ask you two periods in time. So the first one's going to be the April that just graduated from law school. 
Um, if you could go back and talk to that April back then, what advice would you give yourself about career and future and business and so on? Hmm. I, I think an important lesson um, that you learn as you get older is to be more in the moment. I think when you're younger, you're very future-oriented, which is not a bad thing. Um, but I think sometimes you miss what's right in front of your face by being so future oriented. And actually, you talked about this again during Rainmaker, uh, our, our Rainmaker classes. And uh, I really appreciated the idea of mind the gap because I've always been someone who set such high goals that I was constantly disappointed because I didn't reach them. So instead of that, what I've learned is to celebrate the small victories. And I think when you run a team, that's extremely important because, you know, day in, day out, we were extremely busy into the year and my whole team was working 12, 13 hour days. So I think it's important to make them stop and take a moment to celebrate because otherwise everything just gets jumbled together. So what what I think I've learned more so than when I was younger was to live in the moment and not always live for the future. Great. Wow. That's uh, <laughs> If I could just remember that every day, that would be good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like today, I'm living six months from now instead of today. So that's, that's really good advice. Um, so I think you answered. I was going to give you a different point in time, but I think you transcended there that the points in time between graduating law school and then um, of course, starting in this business. What about advice specific to this business? Not so much mindset, because that's so valuable, the mindset piece, but what about specific to this business? I, I'm sure when you started out and you left your dad's office in Mississippi and struck out on your own in Houston, there must have been a lot of, I don't know, uncertainty, anxiety, maybe excitement. But if you could go back and talk to that person, that April Roberts that started, that opened up that office there in the Houston area, and what would you say to her right now if she was starting all over again? Well, my mom already told two points on this. Number one, my mom always told me, April, you have to pay your dues. Society doesn't hand you anything. And, you know, you have to show up and you have to work every day. And I've seen that in both my careers. But having been a successful lawyer, I mean, I worked for the largest firm in Atlanta. So I had a very successful career already. And then starting again in this business was a very humbling experience because I can remember I, I worked with my dad, and of course my dad's very successful, so I was used to a certain level of business. And then when you strike out on your own and you have your own office and you're balancing everything, I mean, to this day, I remember the first annuity I closed in Houston, and it was a $40,000 annuity, and I cried on the way home. And mm. I mean, I see that client every year for her anniversary because that was my first client here in Houston. So I will always do reviews with that client because it reminds me of where we started. So. Um, you know, I think just just hang in there. And if you do the work, the benefits come. And sometimes they don't come as quickly as you would like, but you just have to hang in there and keep showing up every day. So I, I think that's incredibly important. That's a great point. I, I'm reading this book and some of these business books I read, I think they could just write the first chapter and the last chapter because all the middle is them proving their point. And if somebody has PhD behind their mind, their name, I'll usually assume that they've done their research. So, But anyway, I don't know why I said that. But um, this one book I'm, I'm reading right now called Mindset, and I say I'm reading it because I read about a third of it and then I put it away, but they talked about 
in America today, and maybe in other cultures, but certainly in America, we seem to admire the person that has success and it appears effortless. Yeah. Um, the, the, the superstar celebrity or the athlete where it just, it, it just appears effortless. And, and that is not the reality in almost every case. In almost every case, there's failure, there's heartbreak, there's, there's brokenness, there's struggle, there's starting over again, there's putting in time. And that's easy to forget, I think, particularly in our business, when the people that are paraded in front of us as someone to emulate, you know, many times, at least, you know, I'm thinking back five years ago, I used to watch somebody up on a stage that was, that was accepting an award and thinking, I can never, I want to be there tomorrow. Why can't I be there tomorrow? Why can't I put changes in place today so that tomorrow I'm automatically there? And, and the point we miss is, I think, number one, first of all, the reason they're there is because they, they put in the time. They did the right thing day after day. When they didn't feel like doing the right thing, they did the right thing. You know, they got home at midnight uh, and got up at 6 a.m. the next morning to do paperwork, and, and we forget all that. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. There's just so much to be said for for time. And I think a lot of producers, um, you know, would look at an office like yours, April, and say, you know, I want to be there tomorrow. And mm-hmm. But what it takes to build what you've built and what you're continuing to build, it, if it happens overnight, it's like winning the lottery. There's no value to it. There's no character behind it. And so I'm really glad you brought that up. No, I agree. One of, one of my pet peeves in America today is when someone's like, oh, so-and-so is famous and they don't deserve it. And I, I always tend to correct people. I'm usually a very agreeable person, but I don't sit around and listen to that because, I mean, like you just talked about, you and I know that's not the case. No matter how effortless it looks, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into it. And I think that people like to latch on to that as an excuse for them not accomplishing things. Well, yeah, in this book, it, it's called The Mindset, and it talks about the fixed mindset and the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. The fixed mindset is, well, we're just born with this talent. There's nothing we can do to, to get better. And it's, so if I don't have it, I just will never have it. And that person just had some magical thing. And it's like winning the lottery where the growth mindset says, no, if we work for something, and if somebody has arrived somewhere, they've probably worked for it. And, and it's just acknowledging that we can change and we can improve. And it's so important to have that. And, you know, I say that and people are going, well, of course, everybody knows that. But I don't think we always act like that. I don't think I necessarily always act like that. So I think it's, it's good to touch on that. T- talk to us about, you know, in the Rainmaker Group, we talk about our businesses in the before unit, which is all the marketing we do to create an appointment. Mm-hmm. And then the during unit, which is during the sales process, once we're face-to-face with a client. And then afterwards, when we're servicing that client and doing the right thing and fulfilling the promises. What are you doing for your before unit? What are you doing to generate interest in your firm and and to generate prospects? So currently, um, mainly just seminars. And, you know, the one thing I keep messing up on year after year, to be honest, Joel, is we'll get busy and I am the only advisor in my office. So when the calendar gets full, I, sometimes it'll be like, okay, let's not do seminars next month because we're underwater. And so every year when I look back and I say, okay, why didn't I do a little better than this? It's always very basic fundamentals that we failed to do. So, for example, last year we only did seminars seven out of 12 months. Well, had I just done seminars four more months when I calculated our average account, that would have been 
five million more of premium. So I think, you know, that's another way the business has matured is understanding that it all comes down to the numbers. And one concept you introduced was that first appointments drive the business. So in my office, very carefully, each Monday, I get a report of how many appointments we have, what's our stick ratio, as we call it. Um, and, you know, one of our goals was really to get up, okay, if we set an appointment at the seminar, we want that to stick. We want the number of first appointments to improve. And just these two emphasis at the end of the year, we wrote five million in the month of December because, you know, it was just a rock rolling down a hill because starting in August, I said, okay, come hell or high water, we're doing seminars every month. I don't care how busy we are. And we did that and we committed to it. And I mean, you know, we'll we'll pay about three million in annuities this month. So it's starting the year off great. So just remembering to stick to the basics and really what we do is seminars, we get J.D. Melberg leads. And when we analyze the business, I was shocked to see how much of our business came from referrals. It's really the first time we're seeing that blossoming and we don't have a set program in place. So I think it just comes down to my team taking care of clients where they're comfortable to refer their friends and bring them to events. So you've got the seminars, which it sounds like is your main source of, of new prospects, and then you're running, you're still running the J- Josh's uh, J D Melberg leads, and then you've got the referrals. So really, two, three marketing channels, correct? Correct. And then this year, our major new focus is we are going on TV in April. Oh, great! Tell me about that. What's that going to look like? Um, well, I've, I, um, I work with Mark Gaffney on marketing, and so he's executive, executive producing our show, and it's going to be a 30-minute show. Um, we're actually going to be on Sunday mornings very early, but because Houston's such a large market, our target audience is still large at that time. And so currently what I'm doing is all the research to set up the call center and all the background to make sure we're prepared for April. That is really exciting. You guys are going to just, I mean, I, I salivate when I think about how big the Houston market is. How many other advisors are doing TV, local advisors are doing TV in Houston, do you know? None that I know of. Radio is oversaturated here, so it's actually yeah. cheaper for us to go on TV than to do radio successfully. And are you on one of the network affiliates or a, a cable uh, station? What? How did you do that? Yes, we're going on ABC. That's great. And the time slot is when? It's 5.30 Sunday morning, but we actually have um, our target audience is the same size as a normal time in a medium-sized market. That's awesome. So you'll be on right before the local Sunday morning news comes on, right? Correct. We lead into it. Oh, you guys are going to – you better staff up because it's going to be – it's going to be great. Um now, let me ask you this, So, um, and hopefully this is helpful for the listeners. It certainly would be for people that are expanding in, 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 you know, maybe at a bigger level. So Houston is a big city. For those of you that don't know, I think it's the sixth largest metropolitan area in the U.S. And Actually, so from where you— now. Is it the third? Okay. So all I know is from where you are in Sugarland to drive to the George Bush Airport, I'm pretty sure it's like an hour drive. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. From south to north in traffic, it takes you two hours to get out of the city. Okay. And so do you anticipate maybe opening up a satellite office or two? Or, or do you, are you going to try to get the people to drive to your office from the TV leads? Have you thought that far ahead? Or are you just going to see if you get traction and figure it out? 
Yeah, so currently I'm on the southwest side of town, and my dad and sister are on the southeast, so they'll they'll get leads from the show as well. And then we have a satellite office in West Houston. It's just not staffed. Um, so the next move to be, would be to move into the city or north of the city because okay. in the Woodlands areas where Exxon and some other large companies are, are moving everyone, uh, so that would be our next target. But right now, um, we are working on systematizing what we have before we do that. And can you get people to drive from like, so there's the sort of, there's sort of the Bel Air area there where there's a lot of high income people. Will they drive to Sugarland for an appointment? What is that, like 30 miles? Yes, we, we do have some clients from there. So okay. it takes about, actually, Bel Air to here is about 15 minutes, so it's not too bad. Oh, okay. That's not bad. Okay, good. Well, that's great. I will look forward to, and those of us uh, in the Rainmaker Elite group, the second year group, we're going to really look forward to hearing how you're doing with the uh, um, with with the TV. That's, uh, that's excellent. And um, also, uh, I recorded a podcast with Matt Dickin. So by the time you're hearing this podcast, that would be this would be the one preceding that. And Matt talks about his TV strategy, and he's also a great resource, and it's been really helpful in, in helping a lot of folks figure out whether TV's right for them and then how to make it work. So that is great. So what are your goals then for next year compared to this year? Where did you finish up the year, April? Uh, so my office t- finished right at $23 million of total assets um, and our goal for next year is $30 million. If if Once we go on TV and add associate advisors, I, I think we'll do even better than that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you're going to I think you're going to be very pleasantly surprised by TV. It'll be a challenge to figure it out, I think, but it was for us a little bit, but um, what a great medium and and you're just playing in a in an area where a lot of people aren't playing and like you said there's so many people on the radio and not a lot on TV and and uh, it's it's trick it, it's I shouldn't say it's tricky to be good on TV my my opinion and my experience is once you figure out TV the leverage is absolutely huge because it'll leverage into your seminars and just everything else so that's yeah, great. We're- we're excited. I actually had a goal to do TV in about two years from now, and everything kind of fell in place. So the opportunity, it was the right time. So we're looking forward to it. Good. Good. Um, so talk about the during unit. So we talked about the marketing, getting the appointments. You know, Now they show up at the office. What does your sales process look like? How many meetings? Do you have a proprietary um, sort of a system, like we have our little money map that's pretty simple, but it's, I would consider that proprietary. Do you have a system you run people through? Who sees the meeting? Do you do all the meetings? Does somebody do the first, do you do the second? Just walk us through your sales process, if you would, please. Okay, sounds good. Uh, Joel, I have to admit the sales process was always a challenge for me. I, I guess I'm a naturally good closer, and I'm naturally good at seminars. And I find that sometimes the things we're naturally good at are our biggest challenges because we tend to be lazy at that because it comes easy. And so for two years now, Generani has been beating me over the head to proceduralize my pro, you know, case time a little bit better. Um, and I have to admit that I was winging it too much in the past. And so, again, going to the Rainmaker sessions really made me realize that when we systematize, we can leverage our time. 
And so now we have a completely systematized case prep, um, and we actually do a four-appointment process, and here's why. In Houston, we have a little higher net worth, and Fort Bend County, where I am, is actually one of the higher net worth areas. So our average new client is probably 750 to a million of assets. Um, so, and we tend to get all of the assets. So I sat down with my my new business team and we walked through and we actually have a four appointment process time. So I know a lot of people do it much quicker than that. And one thing I beat myself up for was not getting it done quicker in the past. And I finally just gave into it and said, okay, it takes four appointments. They're happy. They don't turn around. We get all the assets. We get a higher than average case size. So this is what we're going to do. Um, so that's what we have. And my new business team is trained to run first appointments in case we double book and someone shows up. But for the most point part, currently, I run all the appointments. However, they do all my case prep for me. I assume the first appointment's a fact-finding appointment, correct? Kind of a discovery appointment. You're getting to know them. They're getting to know you. What happens at the end of the first appointment? Are, is the client doing any homework between the first appointment and the second appointment? Or are you doing all the work behind the scenes as far as the case prep and so on? That's a great question. So one thing I discovered is when I give them homework to do, they show back up and I can tell how serious they are. So a great thing about our process is, I mean, I want to say that we close 80 to 90% of people that show up in front of us because from the beginning, I, I start making them do small commitments or I like to call it upfront contracts. So at the end of the first meeting, I explain what we're going to do at the second meeting and, you know, I ask if that's what they want. And then any statements they didn't bring in or other information we need, I explain that we would need at the Monday before that appointment or we're going to have to reschedule them. And then we're set up a little bit different. So on my new business team, there's a service advisor assigned to every prospect and client. So that service advisor steps in and follows up with them and makes sure they get their homework done. Um, and if they don't get their homework to us, we reschedule the second appointment. Are you making a proposal at the second appointment and then is the prospect making a decision or are you just in the second meeting, are you closing for the third meeting? How, what's the mentality before and it, after the second meeting? In the second meeting, we're closing for the third meeting. So uh, at the end of the second meeting, I basically start with, I, I always end the first meeting, I do a three buckets. So the first bucket is safe and secure assets. The second is lower risk. And the third is higher risk. And I ask them to put a percentage if we could make, wave a magic wand how would they like their assets divided? So we kind of jump off from there at the second meeting. I use the whiteboard and I put that up. I put their top three goals and I also put their retirement goal date and their retirement goal income. So I walk them through that and make them sign off and we check it. And then I come up with three red flags that we drive to at the end of the appointment, which usually I've shown them the, the risk curve from global and a couple of other things. Um, and then at the end of the meeting, typically the three red flags are going to be no income plan, too much risk, and maybe no estate plan. So whatever we found, they need help with. And I basically, they agree to that or they change them. 
And at the end of the second meeting, I just ask if they want my team and I to go together to work together to fix that. And that's what they're committing to. And so third meeting, we basically do retirement analyzer and go through a full plan with them. And then they say if they want to come back and do paperwork or not. But in general, if a person goes from a second meeting to a third meeting, we're closing them. Great. Great. Good. Thank you for that. I picked up some good some good tips. I like the, what did you call the three buckets? Safe and secure, medium medium risk assets, and higher risk assets? Low to moderate risk, and then high okay. risk. Low to moderate. Okay, good. So and so then let's say they become a client. Now, well, first of all, on that fourth appointment, so they're showing up for the fourth appointment. They know they're doing paperwork, correct? Correct. We have a client binder prepared for them, which has their retirement analyzer, all of the annuity brochures we're writing, our ADV, all of the information that we we have to give them. And it's all organized by account. And basically, the fourth appointment, my service advisor or whoever's doing the paperwork runs, I'm really just there for questions. So I'll just kind of review at the beginning. We do an asset reallocation. I forgot they signed that at the end of the third meeting, agreeing that that's how they want invest. And so that's the paperwork we prepare for the fourth meeting. Great. Good. So now they're a client. They've signed and everything. What happens after that over the next four weeks and over the next four years? What what happens? So they immediately get a welcome to the family gift. Um, so we send out something to them. And they also get a call the very next day from the service advisor letting them know that they've processed all their paperwork and they don't have questions, or if they do have questions, they'll follow up with that. And then we give them a call every Wednesday, their service advisor does, to give them an update or to get any additional information from them. And then actually once everything's in place, we have what's called a first financial review, which is the delivery appointment. And so we bring them back in and I sit down with them. And um, one thing I forgot is third meeting, they also sign and I do a client service agreement where we lay out how many times we'll review with them, how many phone calls they can expect, how quickly we'll return their calls. And so based on that, we'll go ahead and schedule out their first review. So, you know, if they're a gold or platinum level client, which has like 750000 or above, we'll do a semi-annual review. If they're below that, they typically get an annual review. Wow. So you've got a nice process and system in place. And, uh, you know, I like it that you're making promises in that third meeting of what the client's service will look like for the client. As an attorney, you must have had to think that through a little bit because obviously as an attorney, you're concerned about making a promise and not, not keeping it. And I like that. Do you ever get nervous making those commitments and saying, well, what if my practice grows to the point where we can't see them every year or No, because uh, what's really nice is now because the service advisor is typically in with me third and fourth appointment since I don't have associate advisors yet, the client's already used to dealing with them, and that's who they get a call from weekly during the transfer process. So in the future, it's not such a big deal if that's the person they're meeting with versus me. So you're not making the commitment to meet with them. You're just saying somebody, one of the team members will meet with them on a certain basis as they are a client for life. Correct. Okay, perfect. Good, good. Great. Is there anything else you want to add before we begin to to wrap up here? Anything you want to add to anything we've discussed at all, uh, April? No, the only other thing I think that's important as part of making the promise as you move along the case 
process. Uh, because we do do four appointments, there is an item at every meeting that we have the client sign. So at the end of the first appointment, we have them sign off on that three risk bucket that they agree with that. Second meeting, there's something else for them to sign. Third meeting, there's something else for them to sign. And none of it really obligates them to anything, but as you know, it just commits them to coming back another time. So we find that's really useful. That's great. That's a great tip that I hope everybody picked up on there. So April, if we were sitting here three years from today, so it is uh, January 15th as we record this, January 15th, 2019, and we're looking back over the last three years, what would have had to have happened for you to be happy with your progress? I'd like to add a couple of associate advisors, and um, I think by then some of my service advisors who are younger will have matured to the point that they can see clients and become full-fledged financial advisors. So I think I would like four other advisors in my office, and um, I'd probably like to be down to, let's say, 10 appointments a week. Great. Well, thank you so much. I know you've helped a lot of uh of rainmakeries out there listening to this podcast and other people that might not be in the group. Um, it's been inspirational. I've picked up some good ideas. I, I love the way you, you, have, um, you have these touch points during your sales process and uh, during the transfer process of the clients that we, quite frankly, in our, in our company don't have that down quite as good as you. So I love hearing things that we can certainly improve. And um, I think that tip about getting client uh, commitments, small commitments from the clients, even though they don't realize their commitments during the sales process was fantastic. I'm really excited about the TV um, that you're doing. And it's, uh, it's nice uh, when we all hear each other reaching for new things that could fail, probably won't. Um, <laughs> evidence would say it won't, but, but it could. And, and, um, you know, getting hurt or stubbing your toe along the way is, uh, is not so bad when you know that there are other people around the country trying the same crazy things that, uh, that we are. So um, thank you so much, April. Have a, great, uh, have a great rest of the day and a nice uh, week or weekend as it be, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Joel. Same to you.